Often Jesus has rightly been called the master evangelist. To properly communicate the gospel, we ought to study Jesus' words and his life. However, Jesus had an advantage that we do not have. He was God. And everything he did was perfect. Um, He knew the thoughts and the intentions of people's hearts. Jesus' life was perfect in every way, and this included his communication. Jesus never spoke one word that did not complete its divinely appointed purpose. At times, in order to cause someone to believe, his words cut directly to the heart of unbelief and brought faith. At other times, his his words brought our hardened, already stony hearts. His communication was flawless. When his listeners were confused, it it is because he wanted them to be confused. And when his listeners didn't understand, it is because he, want, he didn't want them to understand. And when someone believed, it is because he purposed that they believe. So as an example and as a way of introduction, I'd like to illustrate this to you from a few passages of the Gospel of John. So please look with me, beginning in John chapter 6, verse 35. So this is the day after he miraculously fed a crowd of 5,000 And Jesus said to this expecting crowd, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, if you've been in the church for some time, there's no doubt that these words will be familiar to you. But if not, these words could be rather confusing and strange to you. Several verses later, Jesus becomes even more cryptic. Skip ahead to me to verses 53 and 54. And look what Jesus says here. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now to these verses, the crowd of his disciples, who would soon defect from him, responded in verse 60 by saying, This is a difficult statement. And to that, we would agree. and We'd say, Amen. It is a difficult statement. Jesus' words here in John chapter 6 hardened the hearts of those who followed Jesus with corrupt motives. They were really only following him so that he could be an eternal source of food for them. However, in John chapter 4, Jesus' similar metaphorical language brings the woman at the well to faith. Look with me at John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Here Jesus states, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And if we read on in this text, it seems uh, that throughout this conversation, this woman was brought to faith. The woman at the well believed. Jesus' richly symbolic words brought this woman to faith. But on other occasions, Jesus would say something shocking only to leave a person to wrestle through his words for a time. This seems to be the case in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Please look with me at verse 3. It says, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Confused, Nicodemus says to him in the next verse, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter again a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? 
So after a discourse filled with more clouded references, Nicodemus shows no sign of saving faith. However, later on in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, Nicodemus re-enters the storyline as one risking his reputation and even his life in order to care for the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. So there's good evidence to believe that Nicodemus at some point came to faith in Christ. So Jesus' pattern of making puzzling statements, especially as recorded in the Gospel of John, can also be seen in our text of consideration today. So please follow along with me as I read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version today. So after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bezda, or Bethsaida, depending on your translation, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And then there's a textual issue here, but I'll continue. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying, laying there, he knew that he had already been in this condition a, a long time in that condition. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who has made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now in this chapter in the, in the Gospel of John, the tension between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders escalates into a full-blown confrontation. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and purposefully asked him to carry his pallet, disregarding the man-made laws of the Jewish leaders and they were embittered against him. Two chapters later, we find the Jews still persecuting Jesus over this very incident. In John 7, 23, Jesus questions them, saying, Are you angry with me because I made a man well on the Sabbath? Because this confrontation is such a prevalent issue in the Gospel of John, and because these verses are somewhat puzzling, I think we can tend to skip over this man who Jesus healed and quickly move on to the great theological truths that are found later in this chapter. For this reason, I believe these are some of the most neglected verses in the entire Gospel of John. At the very end of this Gospel, the Apostle John himself said that he was incredibly selective in the material that he included in this Gospel. 
And he goes into much detail about this man for a purpose. He healed this, Jesus healed this man for a definite purpose, and, Jesus, and John recorded it for a purpose. So I hope that this morning we can come to look at that inspired purpose a little bit today. So look with me again at verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So there was an unnamed feast occurring in Jerusalem that b- brought Jesus up to the city. And there has been some question about which Jewish feast this was. Some have said maybe it was Passover or the Feast of Dedication or some other feast. But ultimately, we do not know what feast this was or which feast John has in mind. And he chose not to disclose it to us, probably because the material in John chapter 5 is not thematically related to it. We do know from John 4.54, the last verse in chapter 4, that Jesus was coming up from, Ga- from Galilee. In verse 2, we read that there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bezda, or Bethsaida, having five porticos. Now the Sheep Gate was a small opening in the north wall of the city, most likely the same Sheep Gate that the priests in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 3 constructed. By the Sheep Gate there was a pool, the Pool of Bezda, or the Pool of Bethsaida. Interestingly, a little over a hundred years ago, this pool, this ancient pool, was uncovered in Jerusalem. And there were two pools, in fact, uh, surrounded by four covered porticos, or colonnades, essentially covered porches, and forming a rough rectangular shape. Picture in your mind two square pools stacked on top of each other with covered porches along the outside edges, four of them, and one in the middle, making five covered porches. And in verse 3, we learn that in these, under these covered porches, there lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Withered here meaning paralyzed or crippled. And in, verses, in the verses that follow, verses 3b and, verses, and verse 4, there is a textual variant. And some, ver- some versions of the Bible don't even include these verses. And so I'll read them again to you here now. It says, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from, from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And so there are discrepancies in the ancient manuscripts of this particular passage. And in actuality, the very oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not include these verses. Thus, versions like the ESV and the NIV have chosen not to include them at all. My version has put them in brackets. And if your version does include them, they'll most likely have a note in the margin saying something like the following. Early manuscripts do not contain the remainder of verse 3 and verse 4. In the coming weeks, Pastor Brian is going to spend a lot of time discussing this issue, textual variants, and looking at Mark 16, which is a very large textual variant. So I do not want to belabor the issue here today, but I will say that I think there are three main reasons why these verses do not belong. Uh, Simply, the very earliest and best manuscripts do not include these verses. Two, uh, there, there are words and expressions used here that are unfamiliar to John's writings. This is not John's vocabulary. And three, as sco- scholars have studied these ancient texts, they have found that individual clauses and phrases were added at different time. So it seems quite plausible that these verses were added later on by editors to help explain 
verse 7, which we will get to in a moment. But for now, look with me at verse 5. And so a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Now the word ill used here, or sick, is the same word used in John 11, used to describe Lazarus, the sick man who had died and who Jesus had brought back to life. Obviously, Lazarus and this man didn't have the same exact condition. Both of, both of them had, however, contracted some sort of illness, and it appears that this illness had left this man severely crippled. And the text says that he had been this way for 38 years. Since his condition was caused by an illness, it appears that he was not born this way, but that he had contracted this illness sometime after his birth. And for the last 38 years, as he was ill, it had been his practice to wait by the poolside. My guess is that he was around 50 years old. He might have been older or younger than that. We don't quite know. Jesus sought this man out in a place that was probably frequently not visited by the general public. Most proper people probably would have avoided this area, both because it was an uncomfortable setting with the suffering and sick around and because of the potential violation of ritual purity rules. But Jesus purposely chose to visit this poolside infirmary. And in verse 6, when Jesus saw him laying there, he knew that he'd already been a long time in that condition, and he said to him, Do you wish to get well? So now picture this in your mind. Jesus enters this area known as the Pool of Bethesda, walking under these covered porches alongside a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and crippled. And so maybe there was a clear walking path for Jesus to walk through with the invalids on either side. Or maybe these invalids were strewn about haphazardly, forcing Jesus to step over the coughing sick and malformed members. In the midst of these, Jesus takes notice of one particular man. Jesus did not need to ask the man to learn about his condition. Jesus supernaturally knew how long he had been there. Jesus then asked the man, do you wish to get well, or do you want to be made well? And the sick man answers in verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And so here we learn the cause of the textual variant in verses 3 and 4. The text does not say what caused the water to be stirred up. And so after the Apostle John had written his gospel account, unknown editors added information about the angel that they thought would clarify the meaning. In ancient writings, and dating back to the time of Jesus, there is no record of supernatural events or supernatural healings taking place at this pool. So there may have been intermittent springs underneath these pools that caused the water to be occasionally stirred up or disturbed, or there could have been geothermal activity in the area. And some ancient witnesses speak of the water having a red tinge, um, which was commonly thought to be medicinal. So the spring may have had a rich mineral content. However, I see, I see no reason to believe that an angel of the Lord was coming down to stir the water, as the variant text would suggest. However, if you remove these verses, it is still apparent that this invalid held to the belief that the first person, and only the first person, that came into the water when it was disturbed or stirred up would be healed. So this man's response to Jesus' question, do you want to get well, revealed his distorted view of God and his utter hopelessness. 
He did not answer Jesus' question, but rather provided a gloomy testimony of his life and his perception of how God works. According to his belief, upon the stirring of the water, only one person, the most physically fit, or the one who had the most loyal friends and family, would have been healed. And I believe this is simply superstitious religion, offering over only a delusion of hope to this man. And as we know, superstitious religion has no power to bring actual healing. So this man's view of God's grace could be distilled, da- distilled down to first come, first serve. And his response to Jesus' question also seems to portray a sense of abandonment because of his helpless condition and the lack of support he had from others. And this may, may have caused him to become bitter as he blames others for his, inabi- his inability to become well. This man's hope was grounded in this pool and its supposed healing abilities. And it's interesting, according to the text, his greatest problem was that he had no man. He had no man to put him into the pool. It is as if he were looking for a man to help him to get in the pool when it was stirred up. And in verse 8, I believe he finds his man. And later, this man, Jesus, would reveal to him his true greatest problem. Look with me at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. And so in a display of his deity, Jesus issues three simultaneous commands to the man. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And in a moment, the man became well. The healing was instantaneous. Immediately the man became well. The healing was complete. He picked up his pallet and and began to walk. So this pallet was a roll-out mat or mattress, usually made of straw, that a well person could easily pick up and carry on his shoulder. And so this former, former cripple did not need to relearn how to walk. Jesus healed him to full physical strength, and he was able to walk and carry his pallet. And you can imagine that this healing would have created quite a stir, and all the other lame and sick would have been flocking to Jesus and this man as he was probably letting out great shouts of joy. But first, verse 13 later on will tell us that Jesus managed to slip away from the crowd. In verse 9b, it says, It was the Sabbath when Jesus healed the man. And this is John's way of introducing to us the confrontation with the Jewish, Jewish, Jewish authorities that will form the substance of the rest of the chapter. So in verse 10, the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, it is, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. So the healed man is now being accused of breaking a law, that is, carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. The fourth commandment in the Old Testament had forbidden work on the Sabbath, but the question is, what exactly should be considered work? And according to commentator D.A. Carson, quote, the assumption in the scriptures seems to be that work refers to one's customary employment. But judging by the Mishnah, dominant rabbinic opinion had analyzed the prohibition into 39 classes of work, including taking or carrying anything from one domain to another. So by Old Testament standards, it is not clear that the healed man was contravening the law since he did not normally carry his pallet around for a living. But, according to the tradition of the elders, this man indeed was breaking the law, since he was contravening 
the, one of the prohibited 39 categories of work to which this law was understood to refer, end quote. And so, in face of these accusations, the man quickly diffuses the situation by pointing them in the direction of the one who commanded him to carry his pallet. In verses 11 through 13, he answered them, He who has made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away, and there was a crowd in that place, while there was a crowd in that place. So the, de- the man defends himself by blaming the one who told him to do it. He's simply ducking the authorities. Jesus, or the Jews now become more concerned with the one who gave this man a commandment to break one of their 39 prohibited categories of work. And it seems ironic that the religious leaders of the day, those who would have been considered to be closest with God, um, did not seem to care that this man had been healed miraculously. However, they are simply concerned about who gave this man permission to break one of their laws. But the healed man has no idea who healed him. So in verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so so that nothing worse happens to you. So sometime later, Jesus found the man in the temple. And this may have been the first time this former cripple was in the temple for nearly four decades. As an invalid, he would not have been welcomed in the temple. So no doubt the man went there to give thanks and to offer appropriate sacrifices to God. However, this man's presence in the temple is no indication that he came to saving faith in Christ. In fact, it is odd that this man did not seek out the one who healed him. But we know from the Gospels that there were others who were healed, who rejoiced in the gift, but ignored the giver. Jesus, however, did seek the man out. Jesus found the man, the text says. Apparently, Jesus was not done with this man. Although Jesus had healed the man physically, we have no indication that this man had been made alive spiritually. So let's review what John has told us about this man. In verse 11, he blamed the one who healed him in order to avoid difficulties with the Jewish authorities. In verse 13, he expresses his complete ignorance of even Jesus' name. And we'll see in verse 15, when he learns of Jesus' name, he promptly reports Jesus to the authorities. So never once in this entire passage does this man offer praise or thanks to Jesus. And in, light, and in this light, even the man's response in verse 7 to Jesus' question does not represent him well. According to D.A. Carson, his response could be aptly seen as the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. Another commentator comparing this healed man to the blind man who received sight in John chapter 9 wrote, In terms of initiative, quick-wittedness, eager faith, and a questioning mind, this invalid is the painful opposite of everything that characterizes the wonderful character in John chapter 9 who receives sight. So let me repeat what, John, or what Jesus said to this man. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Without any more recorded conversation, the next thing we learn is that the man reports Jesus to the authorities. 
In verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. It seems most reasonable that this man simply wanted to clear his name with the Jewish authorities. And as a result, Jesus is now facing more persecution from the Jews. In verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The rest of the chapter goes on in detail about this confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish authorities about their interpretation or their legalistic interpretation of Old Testament Sabbath laws. And one could be tempted to leave behind this former, former cripple for the great statements of verses 17 and 18 and the rest of the chapter. But questions about this healed man have plagued me for years now. And I believe there is much we can learn from this account. And I want to consider, consider two points of this story in more detail. So first, I want to consider Jesus' selective healing of this man. Of the multitude of invalids, Jesus heals one man and then slips out, avoiding all the other sick, blind, and lame. And so I want to ask the question, why did Jesus not heal more? It seems evident that Jesus was not concerned with healing every sick person that he encountered. And we know that this has not changed today. God does not heal everyone that we wish he, w- he would. And God's sovereign will and who he heals is a mystery to us. So why did Jesus choose this man? We do not know, and nor are we supposed to know. Deuteronomy 29.29 states that the secret things belong to, our, to, uh, to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. So we have not been called to understand God's sovereign, hidden will, why he does what he does, why he saves some, and why he does not save others. But his ways are infinitely better than ours, and usually in ways we cannot see. And yet we are called to trust him. And as Job said, we should expect both good and adversity from his hand. And so in this story, Jesus selectively heals one man who demonstrates no faith. And I believe this story can serve as an illustration of how God saved us. In a similar way, God has set his love on each one of us, not because we earned his favor and not because we expressed great faith. He sovereignly chose to save us in the midst of our sin and rebellion against him. This is sovereign grace. The second thing I'd like us to consider is verse 14. I believe this verse is the climax of this entire section. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would want us to stop here. And so I want to pause here and consider this statement a little longer. We know that Jesus did not come to save bodies. He came to save souls. And so what was Jesus' purpose in restoring this man's body? I believe that Jesus healed this man so that he could later call him to repentance. Jesus is the master evangelist, and his evangelistic techniques and strategies don't always seem to make the most sense in our finite minds, nor do we possess the divine insight to see into people's hearts. To this healed man in verse 14, Jesus said, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. And I find this whole statement to be shocking. And I think it would have been shocking to this man. Do not sin anymore. This is a present tense command 
do not sin, plus an adverb meaning anymore. So do not sin anymore, or, from, or sin no more, or from here on out, stop sinning. And so what exactly is Jesus referring to? Some have argued that Jesus is referring to some particular sin in this man's life or that he committed years ago that caused him to end up in this condition. Thus, Jesus' words would mean, don't do that particular sin that you did again, the one that caused you to become ill 40 years ago. Stop doing that or something worse will happen to you. But in John chapter 9, Jesus dispels this kind of thinking in reference to the former blind man. There is no necessary reason to link physical disablement to sin. And although there had been, without a doubt, sin in this man's life, I don't believe that there was a a particular sin in this man's life that caused him to become ill. Furthermore, I believe the grammatical evidence points to ongoing sin in this man's life, i.e., sin in general. The phrase is, do not sin anymore. It is not, do not sin again. I believe Jesus was making reference to ongoing sin in this man's life. Which makes me ask the question, what kind of sin was this crippled man up to? After all, he was incapable of moving much at all. He could not have been involved in grandiose sins that we tend to think of, like stealing or adultery or murder. As he laid there for those 38 years, he definitely indeed did sin. But they were probably not the type of sins that one could see. Maybe this man had cursed God in his heart. Maybe he was angry and bitter towards God for this awful condition. Or maybe he was angry and bitter against his parents and family for abandoning him there. And we would expect this man would have struggled with covetous desires, coveting every healthy person he encountered. These are the type of sins I believe that Jesus was referring to. I believe Jesus was driving at the sins of the inner man. Was Jesus calling this man to be perfect? completely sinless? No, but I believe Jesus was calling him to repent from all known sin in his life. And so I ask, what kind of gospel presentation is this? Do not sin anymore. And the very next phrase is even more shocking. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So what could be worse than 38 years of being a crippled, being so severely crippled that you can't get yourself up into healing water? 38 years of utter hopelessness. After 38 years of being in this, in this condition, I think it's unlikely that he would have even lived another 38 years. So what is worse than this? I believe there is one thing that's worse than this. Hell, an eternity of torment. Jesus warns this man with the consequence of his sin. Hell, essentially stop sinning or you'll wind up in hell. These words would have hit the man with a shock. He was probably on cloud nine rejoicing in his newfound health. And these words would have been completely deflating and confusing. Jesus calls this man to repentance. And what motivation does he give for him to repent? A warning of hell. Some might say to Jesus, don't you know that the kindness of God leads to repentance? Don't threaten the man with hell. Tell him about the love of God. Well, that is true. God has many motivations for our repentance in his word. God's love is an appropriate motivation and maybe even the greatest motivation. But God also motivates us with his wrath, with his righteous wrath. And I believe that is what Jesus does here. 
And so I believe there's two applications we can take from this. One for unbelievers here this morning and one for believers. And so first, to unbelievers, to those who may be here who have yet to submit their life to Christ. Listen to Jesus, what Jesus said to this man. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. This is a call to repentance. And repentance is a necessary part of saving faith. This is the, the consistent message of the entire Bible and the consistent message of Jesus. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. In Luke 13, Jesus again said, unless you repent, you also or you likewise will perish. And listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah. Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So God, calls, com God commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins and to place their faith in Jesus. And he's calling you to do the same. This is what this Jesus was calling this former invalid to do. And there's no evidence in this passage that this man ever came to saving faith in Christ. Thus, no matter what sin Jesus was referring to, this man was hopelessly bound to it. He was enslaved by both the habit of sin and its consequences. Jesus, a few chapters later, in chapter 8, says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And I believe sometime after this, the man, sometime after the man reported Jesus to the Jewish authorities, that these words would have began to ring in his head. Jesus' words would have haunted him. Do not sin anymore so that you don't face eternal judgment. And I wonder how long it would have taken this man to realize that he was hopelessly bound to sin. And although he was healed physically, he was still sick spiritually. And maybe you feel the same today, hopelessly bound to sin. You know that the sin that you are enslaved to is destructive, destroying your life and leading to eternal destruction, and that it is outright rebellion against a holy God, but you cannot change. And when this man, in John chapter 5, realized that he was crippled with sin, this time at least he would have known where to go. The one who had the power to heal him physically had the power to heal him spiritually, to save him from the consequence of his sin. And the only way for this man or, or any man to be free from the reigning power of sin is to be changed. That is to be renewed from the inside out, to be born again. And so, unbeliever, you are hopelessly bound to sin until you are born again. And so I tell you, you must be born again. Turn from sin and run to Christ the one who died in your place, and plead with him to make you new. For believers here today, there are two things as we close. First, can we just marvel that God saved us? You were once dead in your transgressions and sins, spiritually crippled, cut off from, from God, and we have been brought near by the blood of Christ not because of anything we did or not because we expressed great faith, but purely by the grace of God. And second, we too are also called to repentance, a life of repentance. 500 years ago, Martin Luther sparked the Reformation by nailing his 95 thesis to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And his very th first thesis read, 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And let let me remind you, just as Jesus was able to see into this man's heart and see the sin that no one else was able to detect, God knows your secret sin. He knows the sin of my heart. And he calls us all to repent, to root it out. And there is a deceptive, seducing nature of sin, which we are called to fight vigilantly because the stakes are high. The New Testament standard is this. As believers, we are called to obey God and to kill sin in our lives. Our obedience does not save us, but it does testify to our new nature in Christ. It testifies that we have been born again. And so our ability to overcome sin's power in our life points to the reality that God's Spirit is living inside of us. And so before we can ever allow ourselves to be concerned with the sins of the world, and there are many, we must go to war with the sins of our own flesh. Listen to this verse from Galatians 5. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And this is not a one-time event. God calls us to repent from all known sin in our lives. We do not coast into glory. We labor. We fight against sin. But God never gives us a command to obey without giving us the power to obey. And so after we have spent our entire lives laboring against our own sin up until our very last dying breath, may we say with Paul, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, the grace of God with me. So while on the one hand, we zealously labor against sin in our lives, we know that every inch of growth in Christ-likeness is fueled by and driven by God's grace. Everything we have is grace. God saved us by his grace, and he enables us to fight sin in our own hearts by his grace. Please bow with me as we close. Lord, as, as we consider these words in this crippled man in John chapter 5 that Jesus healed, uh, we are stunned. And I think of these words, Jesus' words to this man, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And Lord, I think of some of the other things you said. I think of what Jesus said when one of his disciples asked him, Lord, are there just a few being saved? And Jesus answered, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will sink to enter and will not be able to. And Lord, so we recognize that there are only few who are saved. And Lord, we just thank you that you have counted us, you have counted us uh, blessed. You have set your love upon us, not because of anything we did. And we worship you because you saved us when we were cut off from you. God, you deserve all the glory and honor for our salvation. And we want to steal no credit. And Lord, we think of those who do not know you here. Lord, we pray for them. God, we pray that you would open their eyes to see Christ and his beauty and that they would turn from their sin and believe. Lord, we thank you for the promises, your promises that we find in your word. We thank you for 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we know that you have not allowed us to be sinlessly perfect. We have indwelling sin in our hearts, but that you call, you call us to repent from it, to turn from it, to confess it to you, and to ask for forgiveness. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to labor against sin in our own hearts. May we first and foremost be concerned with the sins of our own flesh, Lord. And Lord, so I just pray for our church. Would we grow in our Christ-likeness? Would we be made more like your son with each passing day? God, this is our desire. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.